Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So I'm carrying on in this series, A Greater Perspective. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever ever spoken, ever preached, greatest discourse of any kind. So week one was the stairway to heaven. We talked about the Beatitudes, week two, inside out, week three, the inverted law. And today my message is entitled, The F-Bomb. How many of you are surprised that I chose that as my title? Come on. (laughs) Some of you know me better, so you're not surprised by anything. I deliberately chose a strong title for a purpose because forgiveness is so powerful, I wanted something that would illustrate that. Now, for the post-war generation, which I'm part of, we remember the A-bomb, which was the atomic bomb. And we remember how the Second World War ended in Japan with the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That's actually how you pronounce that, by the way. Those two bombs, which were little boy and fat man on those two cities, not only devastated and destroyed those cities, but actually crippled an entire generation in so many ways. The power of the A-bomb was something that we feared growing up. Relationally, the A-bomb is anger, offense, bitterness, unforgiveness, and forgiveness is the antidote. See, the A-bomb has the power to blow things apart, unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, blow things apart. But the F-bomb, forgiveness, is able to bring things back together. So when I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus referencing forgiveness all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is what I'm going to tell you. This is the most important subject in the Sermon on the Mount. I know what you're thinking right now. You're saying, Pastor Mark, you've said that every sermon this this month. Every single one's been the most important. You know why? Because it is the most important. If it's in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the most important. They're all the most important. You can do that, can't you? And this this one really is important. Uh, It's mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, which, by the way, is in the Sermon on the Mount. You know that we could spend a year on the Sermon on the Mount. You could spend half a year on the Lord's Prayer. But there, right in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, he says these words. You all know them. You've said them a thousand times. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or, as little Susie put it, forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. (laughs) You know what? Little Susie got it right. I mean, think about that. Isn't that the problem with life? People are putting trash... In your baskets, and you're putting trash in their baskets, and we need to learn how to forgive each other about this trash going on. You do know what I'm talking about, don't you? Little Susie got it right. So I'm going to tell you a story. I promise it's going to amuse you today. So last summer, uh, Kathy and I were on vacation. We were down at the cabin, and our daughter and her three children and her husband, they came to stay with us for a few days, which was great to see the grandkids. But two of these grandkids were in diapers, and I had no idea how much pooping they do. They just poop and poop, and they're just pooping up a storm, and there's all these diapers being created, and they kind of take the diaper and fold it over with the little tabs, and you got this little you know, poop torpedo that it creates. And I thought, how are these little tiny people creating so much poop? 
And it's so stinky. They're so cute and cuddly and lovely looking and so smelly at the same time. And so there's all this poop going on. We got no garbage can out in the back lane. And, and, and these, it was just growing and growing. And finally I told my daughter, I said, you got to get the, those, those poop torpedoes out of the house. Like it's not a big enough cabin to have that smell. And so, so she started sticking these little poop balls into the bags, gar- little you know, shopping bags and throwing them out on the deck. And so then after a couple of days, there was this mound. I may be exaggerating, but this is what I'm going to call it. This mound of poop torpedoes out on the deck, just stinking up and birds and seagulls coming around. And so, so finally, I decided, I've got to do something about this. So I went and got a, a green garbage bag, and I filled it up with, with the, the, the torpedoes. And, and, and I went to town, and, and there was a marina there with a dumpster. And I threw them in. I said, I'm so glad those are gone. Those stinky things are gone. Two hours later, my son-in-law says to me, uh, so let's go play tennis. I said, okay, yeah, we could do that. So then I hear him, just in the back of my mind there, or back of the room, I hear him saying, has anybody seen my running shoes? Does anybody know where my running shoes are? And so then his wife, my daughter, says, well, what did you do with them? He said, well, I had gone in the lake with them. They were all wet, and so I stuck them in a plastic bag, and I threw them out in the deck. I said, well, I know exactly where your shoes are. They're in the bottom of the dumpster in town. He says, why'd you throw out my shoes? I said, why did you put them in a bag beside the, the, the poopy diapers? Of course I threw them out. So he says, well, I guess we don't have to go play tennis. I said, no, we're going, ten- we're going to play tennis, and I'm going to get you your runners back. I know exactly where they are in that dumpster. <laughs> yeah, 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 you got, you got this story right. So I said, we'll swing by the marina on, on, the, on the way to the tennis court, and, and I, know where they, I know where I put them in that, in that garbage bin. So, so we go down, and I said, just wait here. I'll run up the hill. The dumpster was at the top of the hill. I ran up, and I flipped the lid, and I looked in there, and there was twice as much garbage as there was two hours before that. And I don't know if you know this, but green garbage bags all kind of look alike. And I, thought, I don't know why I thought I was going to recognize the garbage bag. And I'm looking in there and I thought, oh, they all look like mine. And so I grabbed the first one that was more or less in the area I thought it was and I ripped it open. There was the most disgusting, I don't even know what it was. I thought, what is this that people have created that's so gross? And then I ripped open another one and it wasn't it. And I ripped open the third one and it was still somebody else's garbage. And then I knew what I had to do. Yeah, you got it. I went dumpster diving. And, and, and I thought, it's, it's further towards the bottom, but I know it's in that corner. And I'm, I'm, gonna get, I'm determined at this point. And so I climbed into the dumpster, and I went through bag after bag, and I'm sitting there in this big mound of open, stinky, smelly garbage. And finally, I found what I was looking for, a bag full of poopy diapers. <laughs> And so I'm going through the poopy diapers, and there it is, this little shopping bag. I pull it out, size 14 shoes. I knew what it was. I open it up. I pulled them out. They're not even new. They're an old pair of runners, soaking wet, soaking wet. So I grab these things. Now, this is not a word of a lie, the rest of this story. You're not going to believe this. I've told you the good part. Now, here's what happened next. So I'm climbing out of the dumpster, holding up these two runners, and up the path, coming towards the dumpster, is my brother-in-law, whom I have not seen for two years, who has a, a cabin nearby, and he's coming out, and he, he sees me coming out of the dumpster. He looks at me and he goes, Mark, what are you doing? And without missing a beat, I held up the runners and I said, you would not believe the stuff people throw out. <laughs> One man's trash is another man's treasure. 
And then I, I walked away without giving him any explanation what I was doing. And I thought, I am so funny. <laughs> and really, I'm circling back to the fact that we have garbage in one another's life. We have trash in one another's life. And Jesus says we have to forgive those who put trash in our baskets. And so we look at this, this, this Sermon on the Mount. We look at specifically the Lord's Prayer where he tells us that we have to forgive. And out of everything he said in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, hallowed be thy name, and et cetera, et cetera. Do you know that the forgiveness piece was the only one he elaborated on? And it's the very, very next verse, and that's where we're going to pick it up. It's uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. I think because he wanted to make it abundantly clear what he meant. So here it is. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Did, did you catch that? Did you catch the consequences here? That if you do not forgive one another, God won't forgive you? Is that something you're willing to deal with? Is that something you're willing to abide? This is, not so, this is something I don't even want to think about. Do I really want to go through life knowing that maybe my sins are not forgiven because I will not forgive one another? And there is such a sense of urgency about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He keeps coming back to it again and again. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, he tells this story. He said, if you go to the altar to give your gift, and you remember that your brother has something against you, immediately leave your gift, go to your brother and be reconciled, and then return and give your gift. What is Jesus doing? He is identifying the urgency of the fact that we have to forgive others. And then Peter is watching all of this. And he's having to live with these other 11 disciples. And a bunch of them are jerks, you know. I mean, you got Judas. He's going to be tough. Simon the Zealot, he's going to be tough. Matthew, the tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors. They for sure had relational difficulties. So Peter comes to Jesus and he said, So... How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Like seven? I think he's going out on a limb here. I'm thinking he's probably thinking, you know, there's probably a maximum number, maybe three, five at tops. I'm going to go over the top, super impress Jesus, and I'm going to suggest maybe seven. Maybe I'm willing to go to seven. So he says, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Up to seven? What did Jesus say? Seven times seven. Seven times 70. How many is that? Anybody know how many that is? It's 490. Do you think 490 is the point? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think he picked a number that was so big that you wouldn't really be able to count because the essence of what Jesus is saying is that you need to forgive everybody all the time. Forgive everybody all the time. And you know what? You should all know this. I have said that a hundred times in this church. It is the motto in which I live by. I have made a decision in my life, a solemn decision, that I will forgive everybody all the time. And there is nothing anybody can say or do to me that I won't forgive them for. Now, that's not a, a taunt or a dare for you, but, but, it, but it is how I, I determine to live. I'm going to forgive everybody all the time. And I tell other people that they need to forgive everybody all the time because that's what Jesus told us we had to do. And if we don't, 
he won't forgive us our sins. Now, this is about the moment in the message where people decide it's a good time to try to negotiate with me. And people say, but Pastor Mark, you don't understand my situation. You've never met my family. You don't know what it's like to live with these people. You know what? That's true. I don't. I don't know what it is to walk in your shoes. I don't know what it is to live in your skin. But it doesn't matter because this is what I know. It's 100% non-negotiable. He told us we have to forgive everybody all the time. And here's what I remind people. It's not my rule. (laughs) Do you think I make this stuff up? I do make stuff up, but not this one. This is not my rule. This is Jesus' rule. And let me inform you about something. There's an interesting word in the scripture. It's the word offense, a word we use all the time. But in the Greek language, it's the word scandalon. And scandalon means, it's where we get our English word scandalized, but the word scandalon in, in biblical times was a trap. And it was what you would use to trap an animal. You'd open up this trap to catch a mouse or a bear or whatever, and you would have this trap, and it was called a scandalon. And the, the animal would step in that trap, and the trap gets shut. And what the scripture defines is that when we become offended... We're the one who's trapped. See, see, here's, here's where we're so naive. We think that if we're mad at somebody, if we're bitter with somebody, if we are unforgiving towards someone, we're somehow punishing them. It doesn't punish them. They might not even be thinking about it. There's only one person who's punished, and you know who that is? You. You're the one who is punished by being unforgiving to other people. Someone once said this, and I love it, that that he who fails to forgive burns the bridge that he himself must cross. You get that, don't you? And then the other one is this, but he who does forgive sets the prisoner free only to discover that the prisoner is he. See, when we forgive, we're the ones who get set free by this. There's, There's a story I love about this, about this prisoner, and he decides to escape, and he digs a tunnel 200 feet, he doesn't know where he's going to come up, but anyway, he comes up, and he's, and he's pretty happy to be free, and he's in a schoolyard, and the kids are out for recess, but he's so excited, he starts jumping up and down, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Some little boy walks up to him and says, big deal, I'm four. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do for the rest of the message. I've given you the theological framework for this on forgiveness. Now we're going to talk about the practicality and the application of it. And what I'm going to teach you to do today is I'm going to teach you to drop the F-bomb. You thought you'd never lose, learn this in church, right? I, and, and please don't do this. Please don't you know, text a friend right now and say, I'm sitting in church. The pastor is teaching us how to drop the F-bomb. They're not going to understand the context of that, so please don't do that. And what I'm talking about is what are we going to do to apply forgiveness to our life. And so I'm going to throw this up on the screen. Here's the three things I want to talk about. The F-bomb, reversing the hurt. And there are three things that are big hindrances, and I'm going to tell you how to get past these. And this is what they are. Number one, rehearsing the hurt. Number two, cursing the hurt. And number three, nursing the hurt. So the first thing is this. It's rehearsing the hurt. And let me explain what that is. Uh, Probably most of us have some egregious thing that has happened in our life. Somebody has done something dreadful, terrible, mean, hurtful, abusive. Uh, There's nobody that's dodged this bullet. Everybody experiences this. But here's what we often do, and and we probably don't think about it every single day, but what happens is every once in a while, it rears its ugly head, and you start thinking about it. 
And what you do is you ruminate on it and you not only rehearse it, but you relive it. And you're playing the whole story through your head. I know you've all done this. And you're playing this whole thing through your head. And here's the problem. Here's why it's a fool's errand. You're not going to have a different outcome. You can't actually change it. All you do is end up reliving some hurt from the past. So I want to talk to you about a researcher. He's actually considered probably the world's greatest expert on the subject of forgiveness. Who knew there was such a thing? And his name is Everett L. Worthington Jr. His name is way too long, but I forgive him. And, uh, and he's written 30 different books on forgiveness. His stuff is fascinating. And uh, you would love any of his stuff. This one is particularly interesting to me. It's Forgiveness and Health, Scientific Evidence and Theories Relating Forgiveness to Better Health. And this will be no surprise to you, but basically people who forgive are happier and they live longer. And I don't think anybody in this room would be surprised by that. But the opposite is also true, that people who do not forgive are less happy in life and they're actually in much poorer health and live a lot shorter. And so he did these experiments, which I thought were kind of fascinating, and that they took this, this group of people, I think it was 50-some people, and they got them in, in rooms, and they put them in a chair all by themselves, and they hooked them up to uh, a bunch of medical instruments, and they were going to test their vital uh, st- uh, symptoms. So blood pressure and, and heart rate and you know, uh, blood, blood glucose, uh, um, cortisol levels, different things like that. And so they, they put them in, and they said, this is all we want you to do. We've hooked you up to these instruments. And all we want you to do is to imagine the worst thing that ever happened to you, the worst thing a person ever happened, did to you. Whatever that was, whenever it was, try to conjure that in, in your mind. And what we want to do is we want to measure the vitals and see what we find out. So as people sat there, alone in the, the, these rooms, doing nothing but thinking about a past event, Certain physiological changes began to happen. Their heart rates went up, their blood pressure went up, their blood glucose went up, they started sweating, and their um, cortisol levels also started to increase. And they actually exhibited all the signs that people exhibit under severe stress. They weren't even doing anything. They were just thinking about something. What they were doing was rehearsing the hurt. They were reliving it, and the physiological uh, effects of that thing were happening just as they sat there. And they realized how devastating this was when people do nothing more than think about past hurts. And he points out this thing I thought was sort of funny about these elevated cortisol levels. And then he, in the book, he points out the fact that elevated cortisol levels lead to the increase of belly fat. It makes you fat. Now, there's other ways to make your belly fat. You can go to Wendy's and eat Baconators. That's actually even faster. But it was sort of interesting to me that unforgiveness has these negative effects. So I jumped to the logical conclusion. Then, you know, I look at it and think, you know, everybody thinks that six-pack abs are created by sit-ups and crunches. It turns out it's forgiveness, right? (laughs) I've never worked out a day in my life. That whole thing's working for me. I forgive everybody. (laughs) I totally lie. (laughs) But I do want you to recognize how powerful this is, that when we rehearse the hurts, when we rehearse the past, when we relive it, we have these incredibly negative effects on us physiologically. So, you know, we all have our stories, right? Everybody has stuff. 
And here's what I know. It's not the people you don't know that give you the biggest offenses. Now, that sometimes happens. But by and large, for the most part, the people who have hurt you most in your life are the people closest to you. They're your family, they're your friends, they're your coworkers, they're your fellow students or whomever. It's the people we do life with. It's the people we rub shoulders with that if I was to go around the room and survey, I know for a fact those are the hurts that you carry the most and have made the deepest wound. You know, I think about this. People insult me all the time. When they're strangers, I don't care. So what? What do I care what a stranger thinks of me? Doesn't bother me. Water off a duck's back. But when people I love start insulting me, I take it personally. Funny how that works, right? And so the same thing is true with you. So you probably have a lot worse stories than I do. We all have our story. But I'm going to tell you this one. And I'm trying to make a point in it as to why I'm telling you this story. So my parents got divorced when I was in my 20s, actually. So not when I was a kid, but when I was in my 20s, a young adult, my parents got divorced. My dad ran off with with another woman. And eventually he married this woman. And this woman, I'm trying not to be unkind here, but she wasn't very likable and wasn't very nice. And it's just the fact. I did not know what he saw in her, but he loved her. And I thought, that's his problem. He has to live with her, not me. So anyway, he marries this woman. And then he moves down the street from me one block away. And I already have my brother living the other way one block away. I'm thinking, why is my family invading my space? This is my street. You know what I'm talking about. George Burns once said this, that happiness is a, is a large, close-knit family that lives in another city. Why, why are they coming and living down the street from me? So anyway, it was sort of cool on one hand, having my brother here and my father there a block away from me. But then the worst thing happened. My father got cancer, and nine months after his diagnosis, he died. And then in his will, this is sort of the crazy story, and I've told it in the book, A Greater Perspective. And in his will, what he did was he left his estate, his home and his estate, he left it to his new wife, and then after she passed away, it went to to the children, which seemed reasonable and, and fair to me. But unbeknownst to me, that after he died, she changed the will and left my father's estate to her children. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And so a few years later, she passes away. And uh, these strangers, to me, they're people I don't even know, they got my father's estate and moved into my father's house down the street from me. And this woman's uh, daughter has been living in my father's house for 23 years. And every single day of my life, I drive by my father's house where a stranger lives who inherited my father's inheritance. Now, I don't know if you think that's odd on some level. I thought it was sort of odd. But you know what? I forgive everybody all the time. And you know why I don't care? It's just a house. What do I care about a house? It's just money. What do I care? It's just things. Who cares about things? See, those things don't matter in life. What are the things that matter in life? I'll tell you. The only thing that really matters in life is relationships. And stuff doesn't matter. And there's no way on God's green earth I'm ever going to fight about stuff. And I find this an extraordinary blessing in my life that I get to drive down the street every day, 99.9% of it, the time I never even think about it. But I get to drive by that house and it's a constant reminder of this, that I can forgive everybody all the time. And I consider the whole thing a bit of a gift. Now, that story's in my book. Here's the part that I've never told before and is not in the book and I'm gonna tell you because the story gets juicier. 
So when my father died, uh, he and I had this business, and we had this joint account. There was $8,500 in this account. The money actually belonged to my father, not to me, but my name was on the account. And so by all rights and legally, I could have kept the money. But I realized it wasn't my money, and my father's estate went to his widow, and I knew the only right thing to do was to give her the money. So I took the $8,500, and I went down the street, and I knocked on her door. I explained the situation to her, and I gave her the $8,500, to which she said, thanks. And <laughs> so then I said, I do have something I would like from you. Now remember, she got my father's estate, so I never got any of his stuff. I never had a memento from my father. I said, there's actually something I would like from you. In your basement, on the east wall, there is two portraits, one of my grandfather and one of my great-grandfather. There's the only portraits our family have of these two men, and they would be really important to me because they're my family. I'm wondering if you would mind giving me those pictures. To which she said, no. <laughs> and I said, well, why not? She said, they're my family too. They're not her family. She, doesn't, she never met these people, not related to these people. But anyway, she said, she said no, you, you can't have them. She says, I'll tell you what, you can have them when I'm dead. And she closed the door. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, was, I wasn't super happy about this encounter. And I, and I walked down the street, and I'm walking down, and I wasn't feeling good about it, and I was bothered by this whole thing. But by the time I got to my home, I decided that I had forgiven her and let it go. You know why? Because I forgive everybody all the time. So then, a few years later, she passes away, and then I remembered that when she died, she was going to let me have those paintings. And so uh, her daughter is now living in my father's house. I walked down the street again, knocked on the door. Her daughter, whom I barely knew, came to the door, and I told her about the two pictures and asked her if I could have them, and she said, there's no pictures there. I said, yes, there is. They're on the east wall. They've been hanging there for, for years and years and years. And they're, they're my, my grandfather and my father, and I'm wondering if I can have them. She says, there's no pictures there. I don't know what you're talking about. And, and I don't know if she's lying to me or if she threw them out. So I said, would you mind if I came in and we looked for them? She said, no, you may not. And she shut the door in my face. And I remember walking away thinking, now i got to forgive again? And, 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 and of course, I'm super bugged this time because I wanted those pictures. And, and they, were, they were nothing. They're just pictures. They're garbage to anybody else. They're worthless. They're two old men is all they are. And so I'm walking home. I got home and I decided, okay, I'm letting it go. I'm just letting it go because I forgive everybody all the time. I'm not going to think about this again. I'm not going to let it bother me. They're just pictures. They're not going to make my life better or worse. It doesn't matter. I let it go. Two months later, I get a phone call from my uncle. Not on my father's side, my uncle on my mother's side. So don't explain you know, how this connection happens. I don't know. But anyway, he says, Mark, I've got something of your father's I want to give you. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, the two pictures, right? Wow, wrong. Sorry to disappoint you. Those are gone, and I'm never going to see them again. But what he gave me was something even better. So let me tell you the backstory of this. So in the year 1918, there was a British prince by the name of Edward VIII. Some of you remember this story. And Edward VIII was the heir to the throne. And uh, he actually ended up abdicating the throne when he married a woman by the name of Wallace Simpson, who was a socialite who was divorced. And because she was divorced, he couldn't take the throne, so he abdicated, and his brother George became king. That's the story. 
But when he was around 20 years old or so, his parents decided, the royal family decided he was a little bit of a dandy and needed to be sent to Canada to toughen him up. And they sent him to Canada in, in 1918 for three months to go fishing and hunting and camping and try to send this guy back a man. <laughs> and so when he gave, got sent to Manitoba, my great-grandfather was his host. And my great-grandfather at the time was the mayor of Brandon, Manitoba. And so he took uh, Prince Edward VIII on a hunting trip to Delta Marsh, where my great-grandfather owned a little hunting cabin on the marsh, and he took this prince hunting. And my uncle showed up at the door with a picture this big of the event when it happened over 100 years ago. And here's the picture here. Here's the picture. And so if you look at the, that's my, my grandfather's hunting cabin. And the guy in the middle with the beaver hat and the muzzle of the gun pointed at his head, <laughs> that's the dandy prince, Prince Edward VIII. That's my great-grandfather right behind him with the mustache and the cigar. Joseph Henry Hughes was his name. And down on the steps was the 20-year-old grandfather of mine, Harley Moody Hughes, named incidentally after D.L. Moody, the great preacher of his day. And my uncle gave me this picture, and I wept. I was so happy. I thought, this is the greatest gift I have, the greatest heirloom. Now I have this picture of my grandfather and my great-grandfather, the only picture we have, with Prince Edward VIII, does it get any better than this? And I thought, I don't think this is a reward for me forgiving these people in my life. But that's the God I serve who goes abundantly above everything that you can think or ask. That's how good our God is. So the first thing is we've got to release this re- rehearsing the hurt. This, the second thing is cursing the hurt. Now, you know, a lot of people ask me this question. They say, you know, I'm trying to forgive. I've been working on this. But I don't even actually know when I've actually forgiven people. How would I actually know? There's a simple answer to that. When you stop talking about it, then you know you finally got free about it. But see, when you can't, get free, when you can't stop talking about it, and you, can't, you have these, these sort of toxic words coming out about that relationship or about that person, you know you're still cursing it. You're still cursing that hurt. And you're not free. And the story I love about this is, is the book of Job. Job had a terrible go for nine months. I mean, all hell broke loose in his life. I mean, this is what happened. I mean, his barns burned down. His crops were destroyed. His herds were all destroyed. He, uh, he lost all 10 of his children. And his body was covered in painful boils. And a lot of people think about this, the story of Job, the book of Job. And they say, oh, poor Job. The Bible says he was blameless. There was no fault of his own. And he never said an unkind or critical word the whole time. You know what? Apparently you haven't actually read the book of Job because there's some very interesting things that came out of his mouth and I'm going to show you one. And it's Job chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Does that sound like someone who's not whiny? (laughs) This guy was cursing the day he was born. This guy was angry about it. And he says, I will not restrain myself. I will will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And we hear people doing this all the time. 
oh, that my mother never really loved me or that stupid boss, he doesn't treat me wife or that, or Lord, that woman you gave me, right? <laughs> Even Adam started that. And we curse these things in our life. So today I'm going to tell you a story that we should all remember. And if you don't, it's good that I remind you. And it's the story of Reverend Dale Lang. And uh, this happened in 1999. But in 1998, we have Reverend Dale Lang. He's in the, the city of Tabor, Alberta. He's the pastor of St. Theodore's Anglican Church. And he feels like God has spoken to him and says, I am going to give you a national audience to speak to the young people of our nation. He's excited about that, how that's going to happen, but he doesn't know and he waits for it to happen. On April 28th, 1999, just eight days after the horrible Columbine massacre in Lilliton, Colorado, where a shooter went into the school and killed all those children, a copycat event happened, and a young man by the name of Todd Cameron Smith walked into the Tabor High School with a 22 and opened fire. He ended up wounding two children, two young men, and one man he killed a young man by the name of Jason Lang, Reverend Lang's only son, dead. And the uncommon part of this story was the very next day on national television, Reverend Lang stood up and forgave the assailant. And he said, I'm praying for him and I forgive him for killing my, my son, and I pray for him that God will do something good in his life because obviously he's a very troubled man. I mean, imagine the difficulty of forgiving the person who killed your only son just the day before. And then a few months later, uh, T T Todd Cameron Smith was sentenced to, are you ready for this? A grand total of three years. Three years from murdering a fellow student. So again, they asked him, they said, are, are you unhappy? Are you bitter about the sentence? And again, he stood before the media and he said, no, it's not my job to mete out justice. My job is to forgive. And that's what I do. And I continue to pray for this young man. Now, if he had, if he had gone and complained, if he had told the media and demanded justice, everybody would have understood, wouldn't we have? We see that all the time. We see people on the news all the time demanding justice and demanding recompense and going on and on and on. But what was so unusual was his divine level of forgiveness that he repeated once again, and the media took note of that. The world took note of it. And the schools across the nation opened up. And for the next 10 years, he traveled the nation, school to school. And he spoke to literally tens of thousands of students about the love of God and the power of forgiveness. God took that which was meant for evil and turned it around for good. Because a man found out he could, do, he could forgive by the power of God in him. And you know what? Here's the thing. There's no one in this room who has something as egregious as the, what that family went through. And if you tell me, no, you don't understand, Mark, you, I can't possibly forgive, I remind you of this story and say, was it worse than this? Probably not. So the first thing is, is rehearsing the hurt. The second thing is cursing the hurt. And the last and the final thing is this. It's nursing the hurt. And you know, here's what people do. They, they, they carry their hurt like precious cargo. 
And they walk around, you know people like this, and they live out of their hurt and they carry this hurt. And they've spent so much time nursing that hurt and that pain and remembering that incident or whatever happened in their past. And they've told it so many times that it actually becomes part of their identity. And they become defined by the hurt and the things of their past. And I look at this, I think, do we really want to go through our life like that, nursing these hurts of our past and becoming a product of them? And I look around me, and I'm just going to be blunt here with you for a moment. There's people my age, 50, 60, 70 years old, that are still talking about something that happened when they were 10 or 12 or 13. And I'm thinking, are you not going to let that go? At some point, you've got to let that go. You can't carry that thing for your whole life. So what if some teacher said this or some mother did this or some father did this? What difference does it make? That's not who you are, but it's who you've become because you have nursed that hurt. And so, you know, I'm just really tired of everybody complaining about their parents. So what I did was I introduced the 11th commandment to our children. The 11th commandment is you shall not complain about your parents being the cause of all your problems in life. The 11th commandment. You said, Pastor Mark, where'd you get that? On my fridge. That's where I put it up for my kids to see it. <laughs> and then when I kicked them out at 25 years old, I said, there's only thing, one thing that you need to remember about your childhood. Your parents were awesome. That's all you need to know. That's the only memory you need to take away with you. <laughs> and, and you know, here's the thing. You know, nobody had a perfect parent. Nobody had a perfect upbringing. Nobody, uh, see people say, but Pastor Mark, you don't understand. I came from a dysfunctional family. Everybody comes from a dysfunctional family. Look around at all these lunatics in this room. There's, no, there's nobody normal. And, and I, have a, I have started a self-help group with this, a 12-step program. I want to tell you about it. So, you know, you have AA. They use these acronyms. AA stands for Alcoholics Anonymous. ACA is Adult Children of Alcoholics. I started a group. I call it A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, P, Q, R, S, D, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. And I'll tell you what it stands for. It stands for adult bad children, dysfunctional evil families getting hooked into just keeping little mean nasty old people quiet, requiring specialized treatment using Valium with extreme unyielding zeal. That's what it is. We're starting it today and you're all charter members. <laughs> let, let, me just, let me just close one, one, one quick story that I think will sum up this whole message. So in 1974, there was a boy, 10 years old, and in the middle of the night in Florida where he lived, an intruder broke into his home and abducted him, threw him into a truck and drove him out into the Everglades and threw him on the ground in the Everglades. 10 years old, his name was Chris Carrier, and he pulled out an ice pick and he started stabbing this 10-year-old boy repeatedly. And the little boy was screaming and yelling and saying, why are you stabbing me? Stop, stop, stop. Why are you doing this? And the man stopped for a moment and said, I don't know why I'm doing this. Obviously a little bit crazed, right? He says, please take me home. Please take me home. So he said, okay, I'll take you home. So he grabbed the kid. He was taking him to put him in the truck. He put a gun to his head and shot him in the temple. And he, the kid dropped to the ground. The guy got in his car and drove off, left him in the swamp to die. But the thing is, he didn't die. He actually laid there for several days, and after a few days, he was unconscious. He, he woke up, and uh, he was full of holes, and, and the, the bullet had gone in his temple and came out his left eye. He was obviously lost his left eye, and he was injured, and he had a terrible headache, obviously. But he crawled from the swamp to the highway and flagged down a car. They took him to the hospital, 
And the kid totally recovered, other than being blind in his left eye. And so he got raised in a Christian home. And in this Christian home, they taught what I teach, that you got to forgive everybody all the time. So he was just raised with that, that whatever happened to him, that tragedy that happened in that swamp that night, he had to let it go. So he did at an early age, because that's the way he was raised. And that's how he believed it. 20 years later, after the incident, he gets a phone call. He's now married. He's got two kids. He gets a phone call from the detective that worked on the case. And he said, Chris, you know, we never, we never captured, we never convicted the man who did this to you. But we've known almost the whole time who it is. And we know where he is right now. He's actually in this, in this home, in this bed, and he is dying. And I'm going to give you the address. And if you want to go and confront him, you have every right to go and do that. So he gave him this guy's address. So, so Chris decided he was going to go confront this man. The man's name was, was David McAllister. So he took his, his son and he went, I've got the picture of it. So he went and uh, he walks into this room and there's this elderly man. He took one look at his face and he knew he was the one. He knew he was the perpetrator. And the, the man was sick. He was, he was dying. He was already blind at this point. And Chris bent over his bed like this. And he said, I want to say something to you. I forgive you. He forgave him. And the man, man lo- didn't look up because he was blind and he, he started to weep, and he said, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed of what I've done. And then, the man, then he asked the man this question. He said, do you have anyone to take care of you? And the man said, I do not. And Chris said, then I will take care of you. And for the next three weeks, Chris came every single day and cared for this man until he died. And when they, he was asked about this, they said, why did you do that? He said, because I didn't want this man to leave this world without knowing that he was loved and forgiven. What kind of love is this? What kind of extraordinary act of forgiveness is this? Something that only Jesus could give us by his grace. You see, this is the most powerful thing that we have in our arsenal, the F-bomb. Whatever offense and anger and hatred blows apart in this world, we can resurrect it through forgiveness. And that's why we have to forgive everybody all the time. Let's stand together. All right, I want to ask you all to bow your heads for a moment. And I'm going to keep you here a couple of minutes because I think we need to do an activation on this. I think, we, I, I think we'd be remiss if I talked about this and then let you go without actually dealing with this. But first things first, with every head bowed, every eye closed, there it's probably people in this room that have never received the forgiveness of Christ. And you've never invited Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And I'm not going to single you out or ask you to come forward or anything, but right where you are, if you're not sure if you were to die today, if you'd go to heaven, I'm talking to you. And so if you'd like to make that decision, and as I said, I won't call you forward, but if you'd like to make that decision to be a follower of Christ and receive the forgiveness, I want you to just slip up your hand. And if, and, or if you maybe knew in the past and you've slipped away, why don't you slip up your hand and, and acknowledge you're coming back. So a bunch of hands going up. You can all put your hands down. And so if you raised your hand or you feel like you should have, I want you to pray with me. So let's pray. And we're all going to pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for forgiveness. That you died on the cross and forgave all my sins. And washed me as white as the driven snow. 
and you separated my sin as far as the east is from the west. And you have fully forgiven me. And you rose again on the third day. And you forever lived to be my Lord. And old things have passed away. And today I'm a new creation in Christ. Forgiven and made whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Second thing, with every head bowed, every eye closed. I know as I was going through those things today, rehearsing, cursing, nursing, telling all those stories I told. I know there's people in this room that identified with some of that. I know there's stuff in some people's lives here you haven't quite got free. You've tried, but you haven't quite got free. And if that's you, and you need to get free of something, and you have an offense or a hurt or something in your life, I just want you to raise your hand so I can see it. Nobody's looking around. There's hands going up all over this room, probably hundreds of them. Just hold your hand up if you want to join in on this prayer. Nobody's looking around. It's between you and me and Jesus. So let's all pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the forgiveness I've received. And now I want to offer it for this situation that has come to my mind today. I want to release these people 100%. I want to forgive them 100%. I want to let them go and set them free. And by doing so, I set myself free. And I do it now, not by my power, but by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a shout today, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 